Hey, everyone. It's your host, Caitlin, coming at you with the last episode of our October Tales series. But first, a quick note from today's sponsor. This is your monthly reminder to start planning ahead for next year's 2023 Philmont Wrangler Reunion. All are invited. The event will be held at the Red River Conference Center in Red River, New Mexico, on July 1st and 2nd, 2023. Activities will include live music, relaxation, reminiscing, historical data collection of the old Philmont Horse Department, and a benefit auction. Other events to consider during this time are the Maverick Club Rodeo Dance in Cimarron, New Mexico on July 3rd, the Cimarron Independence Day Parade, the 100th Anniversary Maverick Club Rodeo on July 4th, and the 50th PSA Anniversary Celebration, which runs July 2nd through the 8th. It's going to be a lot of fun with a lot of good people, so book your lodging accommodation soon, and I, for one, will see you there. All right, so today I get to chat with Lee Hadaway, who worked at Philmont seasonally from 1984 to 1990. And I actually worked with his daughter, Rachel Hadaway, at Bobien in the summer of 2012. Lee kicks it off with his haunting music man tale that happened at French Henry in 1988. Editor's note, I thought it was eerie and interestingly coincidental that Lee's ringtone went off during poignant parts of the story. Anyhow, we also discuss the story behind Lee's nickname, Bear, as well as highlighting the progressive North Country Christmas party of 88 that went from Miranda to Baldy, ending at French with a sweat lodge of epic proportions. Lastly, we chat about Lee's experience as part of the very first Canic Winter Adventure staff in 1991. Today, Lee resides just 70 miles north of Philmont in Trinidad, Colorado, where he enjoys a successful career as a gunsmith. You can check out his website at thearmsroom.com. Philmont taught Lee confidence and to maintain a keep-moving-forward mentality throughout life. So I hope you all have a fun and safe Halloween. Uh, Let's see. This time last year, I was packing for Sedona, Arizona, where I spent Halloween with my sister. And actually, on that fateful night, while howling at the moon, an unsuspecting pack of coyotes joined in uh, a call and response. It was quite the moment. (laughs) This year, I will be out there as a black cat living in the meow mint. Meow cat. I had to. So perhaps we will cross unruly paths. summer of 88, I was camp director up at French Henry. And of course, this was back when we had small staff, only had five up there on staff, no campers. So nice, quiet, peaceful place. And I think it was, I think it was the second or third night we was up there and and we were up there in the, in the sleep shack, um, 
and of course anybody who's ever been to French Henry, you know, you know, there, there's no, you know, no running water, pull your water from the Creek or, or there wasn't back then. God only knows what it is like now. But, um, so we were in our sleep shack and, you know, kerosene lamps and lanterns, like say no electricity or anything like this, which was fine. That's how we liked it. And it was 10 o'clock or so, but you know, there's no reason to stay up late. So we, you know, we were all laying in our respective bunks and reading, you know, by lamplight. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I heard something from across the room. And I guess the best way to describe it, and this is going to date me a little bit, it, it kind of sounded like somebody on the other side of the room with a Walkman on. So that would be earbuds for, for people today or whatever that it was, it was, it was like, it was turned up loud. You could hear it and you could tell it was music, but you couldn't really define it and couldn't tell, you know, what, what type of music or anything like this. And so I, I laid there for a minute, a couple minutes. I'm like, Hey, yes, y'all, you know, y'all need to turn that stuff off, you know, or turn it down. And, the rest of my staff, they were all sitting there reading too. And they're like, well, we don't know what you're talking about. We, nobody's listening to anything. And then slowly the rest of the guys heard it. So it's like, well, that's <laughs> kind of interesting. And then, um, you know, we kind of laughed about it, joked about it, whatever. And, so the next night we all get ready for bed. Same thing. You know, we, we, we crawl in bed and we got the kerosene lamps and lanterns on and we're reading and it's quiet. You know, you can hear the creek and that, that, you know, that's about all you can hear. And I heard it again and I just sat there. I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything this time. I'm going to wait and see if, if the other guys hear it, you know, don't want to put the power of suggestion out there. And about five minutes, one of the guys goes, Bear, you hear that? I said, yep. And I said, I've been listening to it for quite some time. And it happened all summer. It wasn't every night, but, I mean, it was. It happened on a regular basis. And sometimes it, it would come from one of the other cabins or come from the blacksmith shop or just different places. And, um, you know, we, we just were kind of like, well, you know, it's – you know, somebody's playing music for us or, or whatever. We also, we heard voices most of the summer. For example, me and one of my staff members was sitting up there on the porch and we knew a, a couple female rangers were coming over and somebody had already said, oh yeah, they were at Baldy Town. And so we were sitting up there on the porch, we we're kind of waiting on him. You can't, you can't see down to the Creek. It's kind of thick. And all of a sudden we were Burrow and I were sitting up there and all of a sudden we heard voices, female voices down by the Creek. So we're like, Oh, we'll, we'll go down and help them carry their packs up, you know, and all this stuff. We got down there and nobody was there. And it was probably another 45 minutes before they showed up. So, you know, like I say, we, you know, it was very obvious, you know, that we had, we had heard the voices. Another time we were all sitting there in the cabin and all we had some visitors or something. Like that. I don't know. There's probably eight or nine of us sitting there in the cabin. We were all hooting and hollering, laughing and just having a ball. And somebody said something really funny. 
And I, of course, I have no idea what it was, but we were, I, I remember we were all laughing real hard. I mean, just huge, just belly roll, you know, and, and then from outside, we hear laughter. I mean, just a, <laughs> and to the point where everybody in the cabin just froze and stopped. And I mean, you could have heard a pin drop and we all jumped up and ran outside and there's nobody there. It, it, it's one of those French Henry. It, it's, you have to want to go there. You can't just happen by French Henry. And if it was somebody, if it, Reagan Parr was a camp director at Baldy town and Lord knows Reagan was a hiker, but if he was going to come over there and pull a prank or something, no, he's going to own it. He's not going to come over there and do it and then walk back to Baldy town. He, he's going to say, Hey, I did this. And like I say, so that, that never happened. But like I say, th- this happened all summer long. And we never got a bad feeling about it. You know, it was always like, ah, you know, there it is again. And other people besides our staff, we, you know, they heard it too. And that's a good enough story, you know, on its own. But I reckon probably in 92, I had married Angela Foster, Jim Foster's daughter. And we went up to Arkansas to visit them and, of course, Jim worked on staff for 26 summers and just has tons of Philmont stuff, you know, and I was up there and he said, oh, I ran across something I, I, I thought you'd like to have. I said, okay, what is it? He said, well, it, he said, it's a copy of the original, uh, of, of a photo from French Henry camp. And I said, well, okay. And he, and he handed me the picture and I, I sat and looked at it, and I mean, literally, the, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. It was like, holy crap! And what the picture was, it was it was taken in front of the history cabin at French Henry, and that's the one down there by the creek. And there's a man standing beside a burrow, and on the back of that burrow is an old timey Edison phonograph. And there's a bunch of kids sitting around listening to that phonograph with headphones on. And I had no earthly idea that picture existed. And Jim had never heard the story. Of course, once I told him the story, he still called crap on it. You know, he, he didn't believe it. But I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you know, I mean, it, that, that's what happened. So, you know, that's, that, that's my French story. Okay, and so you have titled this um, kind of the the Music Man story. Is that what you like to call it? Well, actually, J.J. Stevens titled it that. He wrote a, a book on Philmont Ghost Stories back in the early 90s, and he he he's the one that titled it The Music Man. And this original photo that um, Jim Foster, so that's your father-in-law, that he shared with you, who would that well, man this, have this, been? This is from back in the mining days. Yes, it's an old, okay, it's a copy okay. of an old, old, old photograph. Now I want to see the picture. You might have to send me a copy of that. I know. I, no, I'll, <laughs> I'll send it to you in a minute. So. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Ooh, I had to, like, look over my shoulder a couple, couple times during that story. Um, because, you know, that area is so rich in history. All of Philmont is, but especially the Baldy French region, just with the, the mining that went on there. Okay, so... Jumping forward to today, you live in Trinidad, Colorado, from Georgia, 
And have all three of your children worked at Philmont? Your your daughter, Rachel, worked with me at Bobian in 2012. Have your other children worked at Philmont? Yes. Sarah was out there for a couple summers, and David has worked out there for the past two summers. Fantastic. And you met your wife out there, is that correct? Yes. So we've got a Philmont family here, which I love. Do you want to take it all the way back to when you first experienced Philmont for the first time? Were you a participant on Trek or when did you first, when did Philmont first enter your world? Yes, I, I went out as, as a camper at age yeah, 15, 14, something like that, uh, in 1980 with a council contingent from Georgia. Enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a lot of fun. Then went to the Jamboree the next year and was was literally bored because I'd been to Philmont the year before. And I was like, eh, you know, it's not the same. And then graduated high school in 83 and went off to college and then came home and, and stayed home with my folks over Christmas. And I said, man, there ain't no way I can stay here all summer. So where can I go? And so uh, I applied for Philmont. And lo and behold, I was accepted. And I, I actually have a copy of, of the letter I sent them, you know, asking for the application and all. And I think that I actually asked to be a ranger. And folks that know me know, though, I'm about as far from ranger material as you can get. But that's just like everybody else. Everybody thinks everybody out there is a ranger. So. Your first summer uh, in 84, you were a PC at Uraka. Then you were also PC Bobian and PC Poblano. Did it get into your blood? Did you fall in love with it? Did it meet your expectations? Or just any memories from those first couple summers on staff? Oh, m- most definitely. And, it, you know, the the friends that I made that was, that was on staff, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, there's still folks that, well, I may not keep in touch with them. I know where they are and what they're doing. You know, I, you know, I keep up with them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the type of friendships that you make that, you know, I, I tell people, I say, you know, we can go down there to a reunion or I can go down there to St. James because, you know, we're only 70 miles away living in Trinidad. So we do go down there from time to time and know quite a few folks in Cimarron. And, you know, there's no telling who we're liable to see in the James just wandering through there and go, go over there and sit down and talk to them. And it's, it's like it was 30 years ago. You know, I mean, you really, you don't miss a beat. You just pick up right where you left off. You mentioned in uh, the Music Man story that you went by Bear at Philmont. Is there a story behind your nickname? <laughs> so, so I'm not going to be able to pull off the the, the lovable, cute, and, and, and huggable type stuff? No, probably not. Um <laughs> yeah, there there is. Um, that actually came apart. Came about <laughs> summer of '86. I was up there at, at Poblano, and it was me and Forky Redeen was our camp director, and Mike Jones, uh, who had been out of the Ranger Department, and um, Dave Warhane, who of course is the curator of the national scouting museum now he was my tent mate so and that that was it i mean we just about halfway through the summer we only had four people on staff up there well there was a guy named ken kolka and who he had worked out there and he had he had told me how to make what what i refer to as a bear call 
And what you do is you take a number 10 coffee can and punch a hole in the bottom of it. And then you take a leather shoelace and tie a knot in that shoelace and run it through that hole in the bottom of the can so that when you hold the shoelace, it's kind of like you're holding a bell with no clapper. And then you take a block of fiddle rosin and rub it all over that uh, shoelace real good. And then <laughs> you, you put the tin can up under your elbow, up under your arm, and then you, you pull on that shoelace and, and you actually let that leather shoelace slide through your fingers and that rosin causes it to vibrate and that can amplifies it and <clears throat> i don't know we've we, <laughs> we call it a bear call but it kind of sounds more like a sick burrow than than anything else but you know <laughs> if, if it's dark yeah it, it, it'll get your attention so at the at the first of the summer, we didn't even have campers there yet, and but we had a tra- we had a trail maintenance crew that was there, and so it's like, well, let's go to, let's go try this thing out. So me and GD, we we grabbed this thing, we took off down down the creek to where their camp was. We kind of started circling their their campsite, and I'm pulling this thing and growling, you know, and all this stuff. And we weren't getting any reaction from the from the camp at all, and that just kind of disappointed me somewhat. And I'm like, well, this is this. I'm not sure what's happening. So we kind of kept circling and circling. The next thing I know, we're standing right under their bear bags, and I pulled it three or four times. I mean, God, you know, and I mean, it just. Like I, I don't, I don't know why we're not getting some type of reaction. So we left and went back up to the cabin. When we got back up to the cabin, and the whole trail maintenance crew was up there at the cabin, and we didn't see them leave. I mean, they they left that quick. And so we kind of circled around and come in from the other side to the cabin and walked in. And I, I grabbed a cup of coffee and I was sitting there drinking on that. And they were like, uh, "I said, what, what are y'all doing?" Oh, there's a big old bear in our camp. I said, oh, really? And I said, well, I said, well, how do you know he's big? He said, oh, my God, he sounded big. Oh, oh he's, he's huge. Said, okay. So I'm sitting there and I'm laughing in this cup of coffee. And I look down and the, the uh, trail maintenance foreman was standing right there. And I, I looked down and I said, I said, Jason? I said, where's your britches? He said, man, if there was a big-ass bear in your camp, you wouldn't have stopped putting put on your pants either. He grabbed his boots and his flashlight and took off. <laughs> so that, um, that's how I got the name, and it, and it kind of stuck. And uh, I wasn't able to do that as many times as we wanted. I only did we, we did it in one crew. And, but we, like I say, had to quit because that was that was a summer that the kid was attacked upon Chafer's uh, pass um, by a bear, and so uh, we felt it prudent not to be out there in the woods acting like bears at that point because we was afraid we was going to get our butt shot. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's where the name come from. So.
Do you want to talk about any traditions or things you guys used to do in the 80s um, as a staff? We we had Christmas, and we called it Christmas. You know, everybody else called it Phil Fiesta. Uh, no, we had we had Christmas, um, and everybody tried to outdo each other with the with the Christmas parties. And we had went there again. Probably the best one we had was there again was summer of '88 up at French. We had um, <laughs> I had built a sweat lodge that summer, and it had 17 layers of canvas. So not only could the steam not get out, neither could the screams. So uh, that was that that was good. But oh yeah, we we had had at the at the first of the of the summer, we had uh, maintenance had come up there with a backhoe to dig us a new latrine. So we had them swinging over there and and dig out the stamp mill right there in the creek at French Henry. And so that thing was about eight or nine feet deep. And then we, of course we put a piece of that black pipe over the edge of it and stopped it up punched holes in it so we had our dancing waters we had a fountain over the over over our swimming pool and of course we had tiki torches remember we didn't have no campers up there so you know we after about five o'clock we was on our own we could do whatever we wanted but uh yeah we had we had bunch of sweat i think we probably ran eight eight or ten sweats that night god we must have had 50 or 60 people show up it, it, it was a progressive party, though. It started off at Miranda, and then we moved to Baldwin Town, and then it wrapped up at French. See, we, we were cultured and sophisticated even back then. So. <laughs> I like that. I actually haven't heard of anyone doing a progressive, you know, roving <laughs> Phil Fiesta ever. So that might be the first time I've heard of that. Let's stick with French Henry for a second. Okay, so... I've actually never been in the Aztec mine. I've been, you know, on the outside of it, but I've never been inside that mine. I've been in Cypher's mine. But the Aztec, to my understanding, has or had many levels. Uh, this might not be the right terminology. Yeah, no, but but it, had, it had seven different levels. Sorry. No, that's right. It had seven you, different levels, and I think, I want to say 11 miles a tunnel. There's a bunch of mines up there, but the Aztec was probably... It was the biggest one up there, but it, okay. it was not. Okay. It was not like in Baldy Mountain. It it was off off to the side, down one of the canyons. So, when you were there in '88, could you access those levels or areas of the of the mine, or were those closed? We we gave the tour on level two is is where the 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 tour tunnel was. You could only go back so far in. And then there was boards. There was there was a wall back there, so you could not go back any farther. And then there was a door that had a hasp and a padlock on it, but it didn't have no hinges on the other side. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, we might have went back there a time or two. Speaking of friendships and the community that you develop at Philmont, is there was there a person that you really looked up to while you were on staff, or someone who was you know became a best friend? Quite a few, you know. I mean, but uh, you know, two that I you know got really close with. One of them was uh, Jorge Uper. His real name's Claude Hemphill. He's from Atlanta, 
he's actually a uh, neurologist. He's a damn brain surgeon, which is amazing. Um, but he work, he teaches and works for the University of California, San Francisco. He's one of the top brain surgeons and neurologists or whatnot, you know, in, in the country and in the world. And, um, you know, he was, he was a very good friend of mine. And, you know, there again, Philmont kind of transcends all socioeconomic levels and barriers and whatever. You know, I mean, hell, everybody was the same out there. And um, I remember, I guess, about five years ago. And there again, I don't, I don't see him as much as I'd like to. But oh God, seven years ago now, I guess. But uh, I'd had some medical issues and basically had an internal bleed that they couldn't find. And I was not doing real good. And I was come damn close to bleeding out. And the surgeon told me later, he said, you ought not to be here. You lost two thirds of your blood type deal. And the surgeon finally said, we found it. And here's, here's what we're going to do. You know, he, he said, we're going to field dress you and go in there and, and patch it. And of course I was scared to death. And my wife, Angela was there with me. And, you know, she said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, I said, take my phone, go call Claude and see what he says. You know, I just, I want his opinion. And he was in a meeting, but he saw it was me calling. And he got up and left that meeting, took my phone call and basically told Angela that, uh, yeah, that was the best thing that could happen. So. That meant an awful lot to me. Still does. And like I say, you know, I still see a bunch of folks. There again, being 70 miles away, still go down and see Steve Rick and Jason Smallwood and Dave Kennecke and Lord knows, you know, who else. Um, I, I work in Raton. I, I ran across Brian Palmer the other day, Doug Palmer's boy. You know, I was talking to Brian. Hell, I, I, back to French Henry. That was Doug's first summer out there. And Doug used to bring Brian up to French when I was, well, I I think Brian was eight, nine years old. And Doug would bring Brian up so I could uh, teach him how to pan for gold. So, you know, it's it's just funny how it all just kind of circles back around. In 1991, you were on... um the first Canic staff, which uh, they now call it the Winter Adventure Program, but right. it was called Canic. So, what was that experience like? Uh, well, it was it was real interesting, seeing how I grew up in Georgia and we didn't have no snow, so I'd never done any snow camping. And I was out here in Trinidad going to gunsmithing school, and at the time, the the program would only run on weekends, so we'd have troops come up from Texas and they'd come up on Fridays and what Saturday morning we'd outfit them and then teach them a little bit about cross country skiing or whatever. And then we'd ski up to maybe the hunt lodge. We drive up to the, to the top of the hill right past Cedo turnaround and uh, just ski up the road to like I say about at the hunt lodge. And we, we'd get up there and, Everybody it was me and Steve Rick and VD Plu and Dennis Vandermeer and I mean we're we're all 
<laughs> hardcore backcountry folks. We ain't, you know, hell. So we'd get up there. <laughs> and everybody had their own little tent. We'd, we'd set up our own little tent. We'd all crawl in the tent. We'd take us a nap. All the kids would go around playing and snowball fights, whatever. We'd get up, you know, a little bit, and we'd go out and play with the kids. All stuff. Well, hell, it'd get dark about 5, 36 o'clock up there in the mountains in the wintertime. Well, there, there's nothing to do. So all the kids go to sleep. <clears throat> We'd all sit around drinking hot chocolate, sitting in the snow, you know, and then the next morning we'd get up, we'd just, we'd ski back down. So, I mean, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, it was different. It's, it's something I'd never done before. I spent one fall and one winter out there and I, I can vividly remember, like you just said, the sun going down. I feel like in my memory, it was like 4 p.m. I'm sure mm. it wasn't that early, but I remember lying in my tent, reading a book, just being like, I'm not tired. Everyone else is asleep in their tents. Like, I am just like, uh, it like made me anxious. And then I finally, you know, fell asleep. But it was it was different and it was so quiet and it was different to be in your in your tent that early. It was like, but well, um, one of the, one of the cool things I remember about that, we, ha- we actually had a troop from Taos come over. And there was an, uh, I, I think it was an explorer post, and they had an advisor. His name was Bill Waugh. And I had seen him three or four summers, you know. I mean, you know, after you've been there so long, you know, you start to see people over and over again, and, you know, and they become friends. Well, he was out there, and I, and I remember he didn't come out on Friday night because his, his mother had just passed away, but he came Saturday morning so he could go out with, with his post. And Bill's an awesome guy, just a super nice guy. So we're all up there. I say it was cold. God almighty, it was cold. And, you know, most everybody had gone to bed, and all of a sudden Bill launches into the cremation of Sam McGee. And I'm going to tell you what, you can't find a more fitting place to be to, to, to hear the cremation of Sam McGee. And for me, it was the first time. I'd never heard it before. And it was absolutely amazing just sitting there and listening to him recite that. And that's, that's one of my fondest memories. I, I'll always remember him doing that. Yeah, what a eerie tale and uh, to listen to it in the Philmont backcountry on a cold winter's night. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, Gosh, Lee, seven summers at Philmont. Do you have any other really poignant stories, memories that stick out, you know, having your kids there, meeting your wife there? Were there any, you know, anything else that you want to share before we maybe talk about what you're up to today? Well, you know, I have people ask, oh, what, what, you know, what do you remember most? What, you know, what was your most important thing and all this stuff? There again, I think GD will back me up on this. It, it, it just, it happened at, at Poblano. We had a, a handicap crew come through and they wanted to climb the spar trees, the, the poles. We knew it was going to take a while to get them to climb, but you know that's that's all right, you know. But you know, we wanted to give them the extra time, but we couldn't slight any of the other crews, you know, at the same time. So 
Judea and I told them, said, well, tell you what, said, y'all come down here tomorrow morning, six o'clock. I said, we'll go down. We'll, GD and I will come down. We'll help you. And so we did. We got down there and met them. And there was, I don't know, there was 10 or 12 of the kids or, you know, and some of them, some of them were adults. But to me, that was, that was probably one of the coolest things we did was helping these kids climb those poles. And some of them didn't climb three or four feet. And, you know, oh, we're sitting there, you know, begging and pleading. And come on, you oh, come on, one more step. Oh, come on. Oh, look at that. Oh, you're doing so. But I'll tell you what, you know, and, and they may not have got more, more than three feet off the ground. And some of them did. Some of them went on up. But boy, when their feet hit the ground, holy crap. That, they were like Superman. I mean, that was, that was one of the most, they were the proudest kids you'd ever seen. And that, that's probably one of the more meaningful things that we did. Do you want to say anything about how Philmont, how it's changed? Or maybe you think it's, it's it has stayed the same, you know, the, the core has stayed the same throughout the ages? No, no. Oh, no, it hasn't. It, 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 it has not stayed the same. No, it's, it, well, all right, we're, I guess we can say the core is, is there. <clears throat> but it's different. It's completely different. Just hearing stories Rachel would tell, you know, back, you know, when y'all were together and stuff like that. And I just, she'd come home and tell me, I just sit there and just shake my head on it. Wow. And I mean, and there again, it, it's a generational thing. You know, I mean, it's it's just so different. I mean, with all the technology and the electronics and all this stuff, and I think that's that's a lot of it. But and I've thought about it a lot. You know, and there's a lot of people go, "Oh, I want to go back. I want to go back." Nope, there ain't no way. I there wouldn't even be no need for me to unpack the vehicle. Because about the time I did, I'd say something or do something and they would run my butt off because they'd be like, you can't do that no more. I spoke, my God, you know, it needs to be done. Well, no, you can't do it. And that'd be the end of it. So it's best for me to just sit back and just and, and watch and, and, and tell my stories like, like a doddering old fool, you know, and... <laughs> And say, remember when, remember when. So, <laughs> hell, that's, that, that's, that's summer when y'all were at Bobby Inn. Had Gene Snell bring us up there to visit. W- went over there to, you know, Backcountry Warehouse to, to meet him. And then we're like, well, I guess, you know, we'll run over here to Staff Lounge right quick, you know, and hell, go to the bathroom, you know, before we get in the vehicle and take the ride up to Bobby Inn. We, and we go over there. And it, it, I think it was on a Sunday morning or something. And there's about eight or 10 staff members sitting around outside the staff lounge. And nobody's talking. They're all on their damn phones or their iPads or whatever. And I'm just like, oh my God, you know, I, I, that just, that kills me, you know? And I, I've told, I've told my kids all every time I said, turn that damn phone off. I said, that's not why you're there. You know, you go out there and I said, you know, I don't care. You know, Rachel, hell, when she was at Clark's Fort, she could have called me from Clark's Fort. I said, you best not call me unless you're bleeding. You know, I said, that's just, that's not what it's supposed to be. So 
I, I can blame an awful lot of stuff on, on social media now. So in that damn little phone. Let's talk a little bit about what you do today. So hang on. I, I, I got, I got to, I got to throw out one more thing. Okay. Right, and and we're going to call this is a thing that I, that I'm kind of proud that we did. <laughs> um, when I was at Clark's Fort in 87, we introduced a song to Philmont that we did at the campfire that was only done one year. Nobody's ever done it since. And there again, me talking about one of them things that get me run off, that, this would be one of them. And I don't know if you're from, are you familiar with the, with the song, Don't Pet the Dog? The, the Tabasco Donkeys actually recorded it and put it on one of their CDs. Okay. Then I, um, then I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's basically the, the warning of, you know, uh, this guy going over to his girlfriend's house and, and, you know, getting some, some friendly advice and the advice is don't pet the dog because the dog gets a little bit worked up and gets a little bit amorous. And, you know, uh, in fact, one of the lines is, uh, you know, having a dog making love to your leg. And it's, it's an awesome song. And um, (laughs) when we, when we did it to start with, Mark Allen was, he was my awesome guitar player. Uh, we had two guitar players and, and Mark was just, he, he's one of the best guitar players we ever had. They didn't stack the campfire camps with musicians back then like they do now. Uh, we, we considered ourselves very lucky if we had two guitarists. Uh, so that way, when one person went on days off, we still had one. Um, that kind of came into play one summer at Bobian when both my guitar or when I was a PC and my CD Curly was a guitar player. And then Rob Mayer, who was uh, another guitar player, the only two we had, were both off. And we got to do Cowboy Campfire and no guitar players. And so I, I walked over there to the campfire ring and carried Curly's guitar with me and strung it around my neck and did the whole campfire with me holding that guitar. I couldn't play that guitar at all. But I did the whole damn campfire with me holding that guitar. And when it was done, I said, all right, let's all do the film on him. And I put that guitar back in the case. We walked back to the camp and everybody looked at me like, damn, he didn't even play that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't. But back to the don't pet the dog. We When we first did it, it's like, oh, my God, we're liable to get in trouble. <laughs> and so the first couple of times we did it, we're kind of like watching watching the the reaction of the advisors and the crews and oh my god everybody's rolling and falling off of the logs hell this is it and after the after every campfire everybody's coming up like oh i want the lyrics i want lyrics there again it's 87 i I had to sit i was i'd hand write out lyrics for this song for the next hour for these kids you know and i really didn't think much about it until I always tried to go to the closing campfire at least once. And Todd Conklin was such, was so great at at doing the closing campfires. And I always enjoyed, you know, 
any of his campfires. And so we were sitting down there. I was sitting on the back row, and, and Todd gets down there and goes, all right, we're fixing to do a song here that that nobody's ever heard before, and and, and if you like it, you heard, you heard it here first, and if you don't, then we never did it in the first place. Well, by that time, some kid hollers, don't pet the dog. And, and of course, I started snickering, and, and the next thing I know, everybody at the closing campfire is chanting, don't pet the dog. Don't pet the dog. And I was like, oh, my God, Todd's going to kill me. And Todd's like, well, Bear's sitting up there on the back row. Maybe we can get him down here. To-. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to walk down there in the middle of this and, and screw up his campfire. Well, now everybody is chanting Bear, 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 Bear. And I didn't go. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. And I walked <laughs> down there to sing the film on him. And I purposely got on the other end of the line from Todd and Todd in the middle of film on him come up behind me and whispered to me he goes you bastard he said you already got the best campfire on the ranch now you come down here and you screw mine up I said I I didn't do nothing (laughs) so yeah you, you need to you need to google don't pet the dog and just imagine that going on at campfire uh we used to sing Tom Petty, yeah, Tom Petty, Last Dance with Mary Jane. Mm. And we can't, you know, can't, can't do that anymore, but that was no, one we no, used to sing no. at So, <laughs> um, if you, if anything else comes to mind, just interrupt me. Okay. I no, the, the, I, I, hell, that, that's enough. Okay. You don't heard enough of me. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, a little bit about Lee, what you've been up to today and for the last few decades, I believe. Um, you're a gunsmith and um, do you own your own com- business doing that in Trinidad today? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I actually worked for the city for, oh, 16 and a half years. I actually quit them in end of July. There, there's a guy that owns a pawn shop in Raton and one in Trinidad. And he hired me because he wants to expand the gun business and put gunsmithing in the pawn shop down there in Raton. Uh, the one in Trinidad is too small to expand. So that's that's where I've been really since about the 1st of September. Uh, so what, six weeks, eight weeks, something like that. But we've, we've, we've got the plans to do the advertising and, and we're, we're going to try to target the tourists and the people coming up from Texas and, and whatnot. So. We'll yeah. give it a shot anyhow. And gunsmithing brought you to Trinidad, which is where you live today. Um, what is it that you love about, you know, working with firearms and or maybe what's one of the, the most favorite projects you ever did? I don't know. It, it's the mechanics, you know, I mean, you know, how to take something that that's not supposed to work or is not working and figure out why it doesn't work and then how to make it work how to customize, you know, kind of, kind of one of my thing that I kind of fell into is I'll be able to take down lever actions and take a Marlin standard lever action. I rig it to where it'll, it'll come in two pieces. You can unscrew the barrel and, you know, then I got to 
local saddle maker that makes me a real nice leather case for it and all this stuff. So, you know, it, it, it breaks in half, you know, it makes it easier to travel and transport and, and, and stuff like this. Plus it's cool. I tell people it's James Bond meets John Wayne is what it is, you know? And, uh, but yeah, and quite honestly, the reason I came to gunsmithing school is I was, I was at, Clark's Fort in 87 as a camp director. And I'm like, you know, I'm tired of regular college. And if I don't find something to do, I'm going to have to get a real job and I can't come back to Philmont. And I was, I was reading a guns and ammo annual and in the back of it, it had a listing of gunsmithing schools and supplies. And it said Trinidad, Colorado. I'm like, hell, I, I had no idea there was even a junior college here. The only reason we used to come to Trinidad was to buy three, two beer. When you weren't 21, you could buy up here and buy it at 18 and go back to the Canyon and we'd sit around and drink beer. So that's quite honestly, that that's the reason I came to gunsmithing school. So I could keep going back to Philmont and I've done pretty well with it. You know, like I say, I've, you know, I've got a website, uh, thearmsroom.com if anybody cares to look and you know hell i've i've, I've got a, a gun if you look at what philstaff.org i think i i, I did a, a raffle gun for them uh, i took a rifle that was used at ponell and restocked it and converted it to takedown and then steve rick made a uh, a custom knife to go with it and the wood on the, on the grip of the knife and the stock matches. And I mean, there's all kinds of good stuff. So go on there and spend a bunch of money and give it to, to the PSA. So, but one of the coolest things I think I've did, and I actually wasn't gun related. I, I had, I got a call, God, it's been 15 years ago, 15, 16 years ago. This guy called me from New York and he said, he said, I'm a retired police detective from New York. He said, I've got two sons that are graduating from the Naval Academy at the same time. I said, well, that's pretty cool. And he said, I got a project I want done. I said, all right. He said, I got a section of I-beam that come out of the World Trade Center. And he said, I'd like to figure out a way to incorporate some of this World Trade Center steel into their naval officer swords. And he said, you think you can do it? And I said, yep. And he said, how are you going to do it? I said, I ain't got no idea. And I said, but that's a pretty cool project. So I said, just, I said, send me the swords and send me the steel and then forget about me. I said, I'm just going to let it sit there. And I, and that's what I did. I'd walk past it every day and just kind of glance at it. And so finally what I ended up doing, I cut about three inches off of the tip of each of the swords and then dovetail the blade and then slice that uh, World Trade Center steel, that I-beam, and cut a corresponding dovetail and brazed it back in, in place to the end of that blade and then shaped it down. You really can't tell it except we had it engraved. He wanted my initials put on it. So I put my initials on there and then put nine eleven on there. And, but other than the initials and you can see the outline of the dovetail, that's, that's it. You can't, you can't tell it. But I thought that was, that was probably one of the, one of the coolest projects I've ever done. I love your process. I love that you actually took your time with it and just kind of made friends with it. And it sat there in your, 
your space for a while and you made it happen. You found a way. It's, it's, um, it's been fun. You know, I've done some stuff for movies and I made the sniper rifles for Denver SWAT team and have, have, have done some, some work for some special ops guys. And, you know, they carried my guns in Iraq and, you know, that, that kind of gives you a good, good feeling, you know, and, you know, like I've, I've got, I still have four or five of Denver SWAT guys in my, in my cell phone. And, you know, they, when they tell you, they say, hell, you know, if you come to Denver, if you ever need anything, hell, just give us a call. It's kind of nice to know all, if you need a SWAT team, you can call in Denver SWAT, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that just kind of makes you feel good. <laughs> But they are yeah, they're, they're I, the nicest bunch of guys, you know, and that that's one of the things about doing this is from time to time you'll run into the macho people and whatnot, but the, the serious people, the serious shooters and looters, they're not like that at all. They're the most unassuming people you, you'll ever want to meet and just the nicest people. And like I say, I, I, I enjoy doing stuff for law enforcement and military for people who actually need it. You know, I can, I can do stuff for people who's got deep pockets and that's nice too, but you know, I, it may, it makes me feel better that, you know, hopefully these people can use it, you know, for good and hopefully save a life. So. Do you have a piece of Philmont memorabilia that you really cherish or proud you have? Some people don't keep things, so maybe, oh, maybe no. the answer is just no. <laughs> I've got all kinds of stuff. And like I say, Lord knows my father-in-law's got tons of stuff. You know, I've, I've got the photo albums, which I, I rarely pull out. I pull them out and show them to David. And, you know, it, it kind of, you know, David, when when he was at uh, Miranda year before last, you know, he took my possible's bag and my powder horn. It was kind of nice to know he's kind of stepping up and carrying on the tradition. On top of that, he was like, well, I, I you know, it's what about a nickname? I said, well, they, they, they'll give you your own damn nickname. I said, you don't necessarily get to pick that. But I told him, I said, you know, I said, I said, go by a little bear. And he goes, well, I, I don't want to get, you know, go by your name. I said, I said, hell, ain't, ain't enough folks there to remember me anyhow. I said, so I said, but it's, it's a legit name because uh, Buddy Morse, who just turned 98 in August, used to run the Old Mill Museum, and he still lives in Cimarron. He's a, he's a really good friend of mine. I, I met him my first summer out there in 84. When David was born, he, he and his wife, Irma, sent David uh, a pair of baby moccasins and said, these are for Little Bear. So Buddy's the one that named him Little Bear. And so that's a legit name. And he's, I told him, I said, you ain't riding on my name. I said, that one's yours. He's doing a good job. He's, he's following in my footsteps. So. Do you want to nominate anyone to be on the show? If you could hear from any of your friends or people that you've always wanted to hear, share stories. There again, I, if you could line it up and you get Buddy Morse on there would be good. He is definitely a historian. But sure. I, you know, I, I think you've done a pretty good job of, of of getting hold of folks. So, thanks. Yeah, um, it's 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 a fun gig to try to you know see who will take you up on the offer or not. And some folks decline, and that's that's a okay. But some folks are eager. So um, it's been fun to have you on the show today. I know a lot of people will enjoy this episode, and 
get excited seeing your name up there. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure you're aware of like the 10 essentials, you know, the 10 items to always have like in your bag if you are going into the mine or wherever. <laughs> um, sometimes I like to ask, um, do you have an 11th essential? You know, what would be your 11th item that you would bring with you, whether it's something practical and physical or whether it's a mentality or a mindset uh, when you're out and about in your day to day? Well, I'll, uh, I'm glad you threw out mentality because whew, that that one that was pretty good curveball. But I, I went up <laughs> a couple of years ago. A friend of mine retired. She was actually our union rep, and she's a good friend of mine. Went up to her retirement reception, and uh, she told me. She said, "You know," she said, "You." She said, "I learned so much from you." And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And she goes, well, she said, every time something was thrown at you, she said, you know, it, it didn't bother you. You just kind of shake it off and just keep moving forward. Just, you know, just, you, you, you just keep moving forward. And I said, okay. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you think that. And she goes, oh no. She said, it's very obvious. She said, and, and I, there's been a lot of times I had to sit there and go, well, you know, Hell, this this is how Lee would do it. And then I was I was talking to Rachel about it, and she goes, "You know where that comes from?" I said, "I do not." I said, "I have no idea what you're talking about." And she goes, "That's that's Philmont." And she said, "Because you keep going, no matter what happens, you've got you know you have a job to do, and you keep going." And one of the things about Philmont and, and, and why it was so important for my kids to work there. And I, t I tell people all the time, Philmont is absolutely the best confidence builder I've ever seen. I cannot think of another place or another situation you could be in. Cause I mean, it just, just think about it. You, you show up there at the first of the summer and if, if you're going to be at Popolano or Crater Lake, you may have, what, 10 days before you scatter. Well, you scatter and, you know, you've been through some training. But by the time those crews get there, you're teaching people to climb spar trees. I never climbed down spar tree before, you know, and but these kids didn't know that hell they thought I'd been doing it my whole life. And that was, that to me is absolutely amazing that and Lord knows, obviously public speaking, because if <laughs> I tell people I, I'm dangerous, if I know a little bit about the subject, I'll get up in front of anybody and talk. I'll step up in front of city council. It, it don't hurt my feelings. I ain't scared of it. And when you there again, if you're if you have to stand up in front of eight different crews and give a program, and that's every single day, you don't have time to get nervous. You don't have time to be afraid. And it that's what I say. It is absolutely the best confidence builder of any place I've ever seen. I couldn't agree more. I think it totally shapes and grows you in maybe one of the most important times of your life and the trajectory going forward into your life, you know, how it makes that more positive. Yep. I yeah. agree. Awesome. That's a great 
spot to end on, I think, unless there's anything else I missed or any questions that I didn't ask. But um, well, we have to sing Silver. Otherwise, on the stage. you know, we have to sing. Oh, you want to sing, right? Right. We're are we going to sing it? No, we're not going <laughs> to. <laughs> I I won't say no. I mean, I I won't. But I'll just I can just cue music. We'll just cue the hymn. <laughs> That'll work. Yeah, let's fade fade in, okay. fade out. Yes, and and don't get fade the buttons in, mixed up and bring in "Don't Pet the Dog" instead. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs>